everybody. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversations across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I am Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, sitting in for the great Mona Charon today. Um, I'm joined by our regular panel, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I know, um, you know, Mona is a, is a, I always, every time I sit in for her, I feel like I'm just taking the class uh, down a few notches, uh, but I'm going to do my best. Um, I want to talk about uh, CPAC. Uh, I, I, CPAC is a thing that when I was a young person in DC, I attended uh, many times. And, uh, I, you know, we just had the, the annual, um, it stands for the Conservative Political Action Conference. And one of the things that, that I understood about CPAC uh, when, I, when I was in a, a phase when I was going to it was that, you know, everybody kind of joked it was like the conservative Star Wars cantina. Like it was well understood that it was, you know, where the activists and kind of the eh, sometimes the, the weirder set showed up um, and that that didn't reflect the mainstream of the Republican Party, uh, that it was really activist class. And I think the thing that strikes me about CPAC today it is still very strange. It still features a tremendous amount of what I would consider fringiness, and yet it feels today like it reflects much more the actual mainstream of the Republican Party, that it is it is actually um, reflective of where certainly base voters are. Linda, you know, you've been around the conservative movement a long time. Uh, do you think that's accurate? Do you think that's happening? Unfortunately, I think it's true. I mean, you know, like you, I would occasionally uh, go to CPEC, usually not to attend the conference, but as a speaker. Um, I've spoken at CPEC a number of times. Uh, and it always struck me that particularly among some of the young men there, um, it, it's, you, you mentioned Star Wars. I, I think I thought of it more as a Star Trek convention. Uh, the Trekkies were there and these were guys that, you know, didn't look like they had any place else to be on a Saturday night. Um, I don't mean to be mean about it, but, but it's true. Um, and, you know, and, and you sort of just thought that it was very idiosyncratic. Well, now, of course, those folks have been replaced by the Qs, uh, you know, the QAnon folks uh, who were there en masse. Um, the uh, mainstream of the Republican Party, however, does feel in some way it seems beholden uh, to these people. And it says a great deal about what has happened to the party that I was uh, once very happy to represent as a nominee for U.S. Senate from the state of Maryland. Um, that party doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, you know, um uh, one of the the things that often happens at CPAC is the you know the the whoever is sort of the the, the nominee for president or in this case when we're this far out you know um, the the people who are the wannabes uh, they are they they come out to kind of hawk their wares and and try out their shtick on the crowd uh, but of course we still have a leader of the party despite him being um, roundly defeated in the last election and he came and uh, gave a gave a, an, an interesting speech. Uh, Damon, I know you had a piece on it this week. What did you think of uh, Donald Trump's speech at CPAC? 
Well, this is a good example of the need to um, separate out what I personally thought of the speech and then what my analysis of it was in the uh, the kind of uh, the constellation of forces in the Republican Party. Uh, as a speech, it was appalling, and it was appalling in the way that all Trump speeches are, that it was uh, a kind of a seamless web of lies, distortions, exaggerations, conspiracies, jokes, uh, kind of inside jokes that only people who watch like 18 hours of Fox News a week would, would get. Um, but I do think, again, now putting on my analyst hat, um, that if you compare it to the really terrible speech that he delivered at Mar-a-Lago in April to a room full of party bigwigs and donors, that speech was just a terrible speech. It was self-pitying, bitter, um, focused on his own uh, delusions about the last election, his loss, blaming everybody in his party and others. He used lots of vulgarity in that speech, swears, attacked Mitch McConnell by name using vulgarity and so forth. The speech just this last weekend at CPAC actually, I think, is something that uh, those of us on this podcast and most of our listeners should be a little bit more concerned about because I think he has figured out how to assimilate his own personal woundedness over the election into the story that he's been telling ever since he, you know, burst on the scene as a candidate in the summer of 2015, which is he he, he uh, bragged about the accomplishments, such as they are, of his administration. He uh, talked about uh, where he thinks the party should go. Of course, it was lots of culture war stuff, critical race theory and things related to that, uh, blaming Joe Biden for every single thing under the sun, including the supposedly uh, imminent disaster in Afghanistan, where Biden is actually following what Trump himself wanted to do, but he didn't care. He's ready to be prepared to blame Biden for that and to say Biden is stealing his idea of getting out of Afghanistan. So just kind of full spectrum uh, nonsense, BS, and Trumpiness combined with talking about how the election was this huge conspiracy where the left Democrats stole, uh, stole the presidency from himself and all of his voters. That synthesis of the big lie about the election with his usual populist appeals is exactly what he will need to do if he really does intend to run again in 2024. And the version of it that I heard that day, uh, again, I, why why is this appealing to people in this country, at least Republican voters? I couldn't begin to explain it, really. But I do think that it was a much more effective version of his message than we got in April. And it had me a little concerned for that reason. Yeah, we've actually got a, a clip of the speech that I want to play. Let's just drop in a little sound here. We will never give up our search for truth and justice for what happened in the corrupt presidential election of 2020, because without that truth, we cannot have an honest election in 2022 or 2024, no matter what they want to tell you. The election fraud of 2020 is the single most requested topic for me and others to talk about, ahead of the border, even ahead of crime, because think of what they've done. 
So, uh, Bill, you know, I, I really agree with Damon. I thought that this was a really strong in the sense that Trump sounded, he sounded light, he sounded, uh, you know, uh, he sounded indignant, but he was kind of on his game. And he he made it very clear that central to their 22 and 24 message uh, is going to be the idea that the election was stolen from him. Um, and I, I've been worried, I guess, somewhat um, that for Republicans, Trump, whether he's actually on the ballot or not, uh, he will he will sort of spiritually be on the ballot because it's all this grievance that the election was stolen. You, there's flags being made, you know, uh, 2024, the Trump revenge tour. Um, and, and my concern is that actually for Democrats, um, Trump is not going to be on the ballot. And he's not going to be the kind of motivator uh, that he was uh, back in 18 and, and 2020 uh, in terms of turning out Dems. Um, what do you think? Do you think that's true? Uh, well, I think that for Democrats is a very legitimate worry. Uh, I can recognize all the signs of what I call asymmetrical mobilization. There was a dramatic example of that in 2018 when, you know, the if you if you looked at 2018 versus 2014, uh, Democrats picked up 25 million votes in the midterm. <laughs> I mean, it was a Democratic outpouring in response to their loathing of President Trump. And I don't think that you would have seen anything like that uh, if Mr. Trump had not been president. So here we are. Uh, heading towards four years later. And I don't see any similar basis for Democratic Party mobilization uh, in 2022. And uh, unless the Biden legislative agenda goes very, very well, and unless Democrats can be mobilized around the issue of voting rights, which is certainly possible, uh, then the odds are that Republicans are going to be more energized than Democrats. And that is not a good formula for the midterm. Let me make one other point, if I may. And that is, it is relatively unusual for defeated presidential candidates to remain central in their party. It's certainly not habitual Democrats. I mean, it's uh, the usual formula for Democrats is one and done. If you've had your shot uh, and you failed, you go away. Uh, and the party isn't particularly interested in revisiting the loss or renominating you. Uh, Trump is entirely different. Uh, he set himself the goal, I think, immediately after the defeat which he doesn't acknowledge, of remaining not only central to his party, but at the top of his party. He is achieving that goal easily. Uh, the only other parallel that I can think of is William Jennings Bryan. And they are, uh, I don't think it's any accident that they have a lot of other similarities as well, as, though many, as well as many differences. Uh, and so this is, this is an unusual political feat that he's bringing off. Uh, and I think we need to think hard 
about how he's been able to do it uh, and what the likely consequences will be. Yeah, I, I, let me tag off of that. Anybody can jump in on this because I'm actually uh, very curious uh, about about what people think. You know, part of it, to Bill's point, Trump maintains uh, his perch at the top of the party, and and you know you can't you can't beat something with nothing. And something that seemed clear at CPAC uh, was, you know, you've got your Lauren Boberts and your Christy Gnomes and people who are showing up that people talk about kind of as presidential contenders. But there is nobody. Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I'm not positive I have this right, but they do the straw poll, and I think Trump kind of ran away with it. <laughs> he even he even talked at the podium about how if he wins the straw poll, it's the best poll that's ever that's ever happened. If he loses it, it's a terrible poll and it's fake news. Um, but despite there's just there's just nobody else uh, who even sort of comes close in in looking like they could lead the party going forward. And with that vacuum, um, I mean, maybe Ron DeSantis, uh, Linda, did yeah. you see, was there anybody, was there anybody that you saw that you thought, oh, that person could, could be the, the next standard bearer? Well, first of all, let's remember that we are talking about CPAC and everything we said at the beginning of the program still uh, holds. And that is that CPAC well, it's true, um, it now more reflects the Republican Party, at least as the various state parties have been taken over by uh, Trumpist voters and leaders. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I'm less um, pessimistic about this than, than some of the others on the program. I agree that uh, 2022 is going to be more of a challenge for the Democrats. It is particularly going to be so uh, if the issue of crime uh, becomes the salient issue in the campaign, even though, you know, there's not a whole lot that can be done at the federal level on crime, it doesn't mean that it won't be uh, an issue. Uh, I do think some of the wokeness in the Democratic Party uh, is going to redound uh, to the benefit of the Republicans. Um, so, you know, I am concerned um, that the Trumpist wing is going to prevail. On the other hand, I guess i felt that Trump was diminished in watching him. I mean, now I watched only clips. I didn't actually uh, turn into OAN or Fox to, to catch the whole thing live, but I did watch clips and I read the entire speech. And it seemed to me that he, um, he wasn't as much on his game. I mean, he didn't have any of that, even his sort of racist tirade on immigration you know, it was sort of missing the rapists and drug dealers and uh, criminals that were going to be flooding across the borders. Uh, he didn't have the kind of, you know, snappy phrase that uh, he could use to sum up uh, who, uh, who the enemies were. I mean, he talked about immigration early in the speech. He talked about it at length. Uh, and it's true, you know, he invoked the image of gangbangers and MS-13 that he claims to have vanquished. Uh, from our cities and that they're, you know, coming across the border, I guess, you know, disguised as six-year-olds um, uh, and six-month-olds uh, even. But, uh, you know, he didn't, it didn't, I don't know, it just, to me, um, he rambled much more than usual. He had mistakes and things he said. He got uh, times uh, confused, you know, six months became six weeks and um, there were just a lot of things in there that indicate to me that he is diminished. 
And, you know, we're forgetting that he's got a lot of legal problems right now. And he's got a company that is under indictment. He has um, his CFO uh, under indictment. He's got lots and lots of grifters that are surrounding him. There are a lot of people that are making money off of this. And I actually believe that much of this persona that we see when it's trotted out at places like CPAC is more about, you know, keeping the grift going than it is about any coherent uh, plan to enter the presidential race in 2024. And you do have people like Ron DeSantis who are going to make um, a go for it, as you do, you know, others in, in the Senate, Josh Hawley and, and others who are going to try um, in 2024. Now, that may not help in 2022, but I'm not willing yet to concede that Trump ha- will have the same kind of stranglehold uh, over um, American politics that he has. He has largely disappeared. We, You would have to go out and search for that speech if you wanted to watch it. You couldn't just turn on, you know, the, the news or uh, your favorite cable channel and see it unless that channel was Fox. And even Fox had to have disclaimers at the bottom of the screen when he made outrageous uh, comments about, you know, the election having been stolen. Yeah, that was a, that was a great moment. Does anybody want to uh, argue with Linda on this point? Well, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, that sounds like Bill and I both would. <laughs> <laughs> you first, Damon. I, I, all I will say is is the the polling that we have so far, and it's so, somewhat meager because it's really, really far out. But the combination of the polling we do have with the straw poll at CPAC clearly shows that Trump has a commanding control over the party at the moment. Only DeSantis is anything like a rival, and he's almost always between uh, three and five uh, times below Trump. So if Trump is at 50%, DeSantis is at 10. If Trump is at 70, DeSantis is at like 15. So we're talking multiples below Trump. And then after DeSantis, there is just nobody. You have a ton of people who are around three and four percent. And people like Holly, my goodness, Holly very often doesn't even show up with one percent in these polls. Tom Cotton spends like half of his time on Fox. He comes in usually around one percent. So these now again, very, very early, but Short of I don't know what, uh, Trump, I think, will be able to win the, the nomination in 2024 if he wants it in a walk. Now, that's very different than the general election. I think general election, uh, it, obviously, it's going to depend on tons of things we don't know yet, like how Biden is doing in about 18 different ways, how the economy is doing, if there's anything big in foreign policy that is creating a big mess for the president. But I think Trump, no matter what, will face tremendous headwinds in the general because half the country can't stand him. And 
And, uh, you know, it's not that often that a president loses re-election, and he did. So, yeah, him trying to kind of come back as the great savior after that, I mean, the American people would have to have a very serious case of amnesia to fall for that beyond the Republican Party. So um, I think that is sort of what we're facing, that if Trump wants it, it's going to be his. And then, then, you know, I, I think... Uh, it'll be Biden's to lose, but he could because there are all those variables out there and we just don't know yet. Bill, did you have something you wanted to add? Just very quickly, uh, there's the familiar distinction between Trump and Trumpism. And I hear various people vying to become the successor to Trump if he doesn't re-enter the fray formally. But I have yet to hear a powerful, organized case by a serious potential presidential candidate about a different course for the Republican Party and conservatism. Uh, The back to Reagan is simply not pragmatically or politically feasible at this point. But if not back to Reagan, then forward to what? What does this new conservative synthesis sound like that would be simultaneously anti-Trumpian and forward-looking? If there's a candidate who comes up with uh, an answer to that challenge, then that would be an interesting race, but I have not seen it yet. Oh, well, I guess I just to kind of answer that, um, I don't think that there's an anti-Trump path forward. I think there's kind of a a, a, a competence but Trumpy tone fusion path forward. Like that's Ron DeSantis's pitch, right? His pitch is going to be, I was governor of a state. Look how well we did. Look how I handled COVID. Um, but I'm also, I yell at the press and, you know, I've got a really Trumpy style and I've got a populist style and I'm passing laws against critical race theory and, you know, trans sports. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm a culture warrior the same way Trump is. I mean, I think I don't think there is a path forward at this point for the candidates that doesn't involve um, kind of a a Trumpy thing. The only other thing I would say is that I do think uh, when you when you make that allusion to the looking back to Reagan, I mean, I do think there's somebody like a Governor Hogan who'd like to occupy that lane under the theory that a, a, a mountain of Trumpists will all run and split almost the inverse of what happened in 2016 and that they could potentially sneak through, uh, you know, with 30 percent of kind of a, a the normal Republican vote. Um, but I am I'm actually skeptical that that is that that is even a possibility at this point. Yeah, I'm familiar with Mr. Hogan's theory of the case. Uh, more more power to him. But uh you know, I think we're in substantial agreement, Sarah. Uh, Ron DeSantis is Trumpism with a human face. Uh, and that means that that means that Donald Trump has won the argument within the Republican Party. And there are no two ways about it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I don't disagree with that, by the way. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say by, by my saying that Trump himself is diminished. Uh, that we're going to get, you know, Larry Hogan as president, much as I might like that as a presidential nominee for the Republican Party. I I, I don't disagree with any of that. 
Well, there's another uh, facet of CPAC, uh, and I want to play one other clip here. But but the the main, if if other than the election being stolen, grievances that were that were being aired, the other main theme was uh, how bad the vaccines are. Um, and uh, I, in fact, let's let's play the clip. The government was hoping that they could sort of sucker 90% of the population into getting vaccinated and it and and it and it isn't happening right there there's a y- younger people are well aware of what the risks really are and they're well aware of the side effect profile we're here to tell government don't come knocking on my door with your fauci alti you leave us the hell alone and and now they're starting to talk about going door to door to be able to take vaccines to the people. It, the think about the mechanisms they would have to build to be able to actually execute that massive of a thing. And then think about the, what those mechanisms could be used for. They could then go door to door take your guns. They could then go door to door take your Bibles. Yeah. So okay. uh, Fauci, ouchie. I'm <laughs> still Fauci, stuck on Fauci, ouchie. That's about the the level of maturity we just heard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I mean, this is um, uh, so it was it was a, a theme throughout. Uh, throughout the entire conference, um, everybody seemed to be making speeches against the vaccines. And it comes at a time when right now we've got about 48 percent of the total share of Americans who are fully vaccinated, uh, closer to 59 percent of adults sort of 18 and over who are fully vaccinated. But we need to get it much higher. And this Delta variant is spreading in red states uh, it is among these these sort of Trump voters who have who have pol- somehow managed to politicize the vaccine. You got people like Madison Cawthorn in that clip um, saying that the mechanism being used to go door to door would be used to come collect uh, to give people you know the vaccine would be used to collect people's Bibles and guns. Um, I I went from sort of accepting that Republicans were going to be silly uh, about politicizing things like masks and sort of politicizing the vaccine to actually being, um, I am now extremely afraid that what Republicans are doing, like it's always been dangerous, but we are, we are capable of stopping this virus right now. But we just had a whole conference in which a bunch of the featured speakers and the Republicans, I mean, one of the things, Ron DeSantis is selling a shirt that says, don't Fauci my Florida. Like he's selling that shirt. Christy Nome, a big part of her speech was kind of sub, sub tweeting or, you know, uh, was going after without naming Ron DeSantis, where she was saying she kept her state open the whole time, unlike some other Republican governors who claimed that they kept theirs open, but actually had it shut down. I mean, they are all running to see who can be, in my opinion, the most pro-virus and the most anti-vax. And I guess I guess my question and Bill or Damon, I, I don't understand why Democrats aren't hitting Republicans harder on this issue. Like, this seems like a big offense opportunity. People are dying. We can't get this thing licked without without the vaccines. Um, is there not a political opportunity here? Well, I, I, I unless Bill wants to go uh, first this time, I guess I could jump in. I mean, let me just begin by saying that, yes, this is a huge, major problem, a public health problem in this country. I mean, the New York Times runs uh, a, a chart on the bottom of their uh, homepage uh, ha- they have for over a year now in which they show the number of new cases and the number of deaths 
over the last 14 days with a percentage change. And for about the last five months until about two weeks ago, it was negative because every two weeks the number was down from two weeks ago. Uh, about a week and a half ago, it started to become positive again. And for instance, just this morning, Thursday morning, uh, the percentage change from two weeks ago in new cases is up 109%. And now the number of deaths is also going up, 17% up. And this is just going to get worse. We know this from, from some other countries like the UK, uh, where uh, the numbers are going up with the Delta virus. So it's terrible. For whether it's an opportunity politically, I'm just not sure. I mean, I'm a little hesitant to say that Democrats should be hitting the right on this just because there's no chance that politicizing this even further is going to help. And so in that respect, it might, if our goal is to get more people to relent in their uh, perverse skepticism about the vaccines and actually get the shot, the the proper response might be to say as little as possible about it and to just maybe have the government, like the Biden administration, put out a lot of uh, PR campaign that is kind of unpolitical, just pure public health messaging to try to implore the people who are now starting to die in these red areas of the country to please get the shot without turning it into a political football. Um, that's what my instinct says. Now, if we're just going to talk pure, like rank political advantage, I have no doubt that, uh, that this could help Democrats somewhat because it could convince Democrats even more that the other half of the country are just lunatics and crazy and we should never, ever let them do or have any power. But uh, whether that would actually accomplish anything actually good for uh, our public health situation, I'm a little skeptical, I guess. Bill, you know, one of the things that I think uh, continues to contribute to the vaccine hesitancy is the idea that uh, this this is still an experimental drug. And, and, you know, it has the emergency use authorization still attached to it. But of course, it's been given now to I don't know, over 300 million people. I haven't heard much from the Biden administration about lifting that authorization, because I think that's one of the things that could help. Um, why, why hasn't, why hasn't the Biden administration sort of pushed harder to get the FDA to lift that? Do you know? I don't know. Uh, having said that, I'm a little bit skeptical that that would make a big difference at this point. Uh, I think that uh, the vaccine issue not only has it become politicized, it is a part of a don't tread on me in uh, ideology run wild. It's being framed as a, uh, as, as a freedom issue. It's being framed as a don't mess with my precious bodily fluids issue. Uh, if you look at surveys among Republicans, uh, they are afraid of side effects uh, they are afraid of fertility effects, and uh, I am not—I am not convinced that this opposition is any more in the sphere of of evidence. Uh, I think it—I uh, I think it's in a different, in a different place altogether. If I wanted to be cynical and cruel, 
I would say that we're about to see one more victory for the theory of natural selection. I, I'm glad I'm glad Bill said that because I was about to say the same thing. I mean, um, look, this is a um, this is almost a test case. What happens when you have a virulent disease that is capable of killing, and, and even if not killing, of rendering people permanently disabled in one way or another. And we are sort of naturally selecting for the people who are the most educated, who live in, in, along the coasts, uh, who vote Democratic. Uh, they're all getting vaccinated and the people who aren't getting vaccinated and therefore who are going to be getting the disease, dying from the disease and being harmed by the disease uh, are are Republicans. And, you know, I, I can't fathom how this is going to help uh, Republicans in the Republican Party. I mean, I think this is uh, very damaging. Uh, and I think what you're going to see is not, uh, you know, I agree with you, uh, Sarah, that it would be a good idea for the Biden administration. I think they are in due course considering lifting that experimental level. But I also think that um, private uh, decisions, private industry is going to come in uh, to play. Colleges and universities are all already requiring that students who want to return to campus do in fact have to be fully vaccinated. I've got grandsons, one going to Carnegie Mellon and the other to the University of Maryland. They cannot show up on campus and check into their dorms without proof of vaccination. Uh, companies are making this decision. You're seeing hospitals, you know, the uh, University of Houston Hospital lost 150 or so employees who refused to get vaccinated. So I, I think you're going to see a kind of um, separating going on between the ignorant um, and the anti-vaxxers uh, and those who are smart enough to want to protect themselves. And it's not going to redound to the benefit of the ignorant. Yeah, I mean, Linda, just uh, on this, I mean, don't you remember uh, when anti-vaxxers to me was like a left-wing thing? Mm -hmm. Like it was like hippies who didn't want right. to get right. vaccinated. And I'm just, I guess, you know, you you brought something up earlier about sort of the wokeism on the left. And, you know, I, I look at the dollars that are getting put up on some of these programs and the, the deficit hawk in me just, you know, screeches. But when I look at something like the way that the Republican, both the infotainment set and then the vast majority of its more responsible political set, um, or I don't mean responsible, I guess I mean, um, I, you know, governors with the exception of people like, you know, Cox and Utah and Asia Hutchinson, who's been trying to, to make this case, the vast majority of people are either actively anti sort of not not necessarily anti-vaccine but anti that the government should be encouraging people to take the vaccine or they're actively pushing bad information about the vaccine like at some point that kind of thing is is what overwhelms me to say this is not a political party that is worthy of being in leadership uh, right. it, it, that judgment is just too awful. People, I mean, we've already lost over 600,000 people. And and look, I, one of the, this, this is what makes me crazy about it. And part of the reason I tend to get soapboxy is that the Delta variant, right, are the vaccines are holding up against them. But of course, they're slightly less effective against the Delta variant because 
these new, you know, the variants, they change and they change because they find places where they can, they can, you know, take, take root and, and change. And it's what's going to happen. And like, it doesn't have to, like, we literally have this miracle drug sitting there uh, and we could stop the thing in its tracks. And, and I, I don't blame these individuals nearly as much as I blame these Republican elites who for either wedge politics or personal enrichment of some kind or just a way to try to show a perverse kind of leadership um, are putting people's lives in danger. And to me, those are the kinds of things that just overwhelm my other normal political policy frustrations with Democrats. Yeah. Would you like to take a bet uh, on whether Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram have had uh, a vaccine? I mean, I've got yeah, to put good, my money on that they do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course they do. And yet they get on there and spew that um, that just dishonest uh, anti-vax uh, garbage uh, every night of the week. I mean, it's uh, it, it's just amazing to me. And um, as I say, it's 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 really in, in a in a more profound way than almost anything else. It is going to polarize this country into parts of the country that are sick in which people are dying and parts of the country that are thriving, in which people are protected. Okay. Um, So let's move on uh, to something that um, will, I will try to get get my blood pressure down, although uh, it's up about this too. So yesterday, Joe Biden gave a big speech about voting rights. Um, He you know, he called out the big lie. He was, uh, you know, he called it the new Jim Crow. He called the bills that Republicans are advancing uh, to restrict voting rights, you know, an existential threat to democracy. He was, you know, had his fists up saying, have you no shame? Uh, you know, and then he kind of, he and he's right about all of that, agree with all of it. But then he kind of says, and that's why as soon as Congress uh, you know, passes the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, he's going to sign it. But I I was just sort of struck by the fact that, okay, um, but the, the, the problem here is everybody knows there's no path um, to, to getting that done um, without blowing up the filibuster or other, some other kind of filibuster reform. Uh, he seemed to be relying on the speech uh, a lot on sort of the DOJ and Merrick Garland to do a lot of the heavy lifting by challenging uh, the Republican vote, the Republican uh, bills in court. Um, but uh, Damon, what do you think you know, when when Biden gives that speech, obviously he's trying to send a message that this matters, and he was using the most, um, you know, intense rhetoric about it. And yet, there doesn't seem to be a real solution in sight. No, I agree. I think the message from Biden was very much um, remember the old line: "Message, I care." Uh, that was what uh, the first George W. George H. W. Bush said that. Um, I. You know, I do think that he's sort of trying to convince rank and file Democrats that by Biden himself, he is doing as much as he can on this issue. But ultimately, it's up to Congress and he can browbeat uh, Joe Manchin. But, you know, but Biden won like, what, 30 percent of the vote in West Virginia. So, I mean, Manchin requires Democratic votes, but these are in order to keep his office and support, but uh, these are Democratic voters in West Virginia, so their priorities are a little different than Democratic activists. Um, my own view of these uh, of this whole constellation of issues um, is a little muddled because I think by far 
by a factor of about 10, the most important issue in having to do with voting rights has to do with the kind of nonsense that some Republicans are doing around the country having to do with uh, giving legislatures the power to take away uh, the the, the final say in certifying vote counts from election commissions. Now, that is the kind of thing that if it had been in place after the last election, could potentially have led, uh, you know, certified victories for Joe Biden to be overturned by Republican state legislatures, which would have not automatically led Trump to win, but would have sent the entire process into a total spin out of chaos. That is a true big lie and a very, very dangerous uh, path. Now, that's the big threat. The problem is that the bills, especially the For the People Act, is really not about that at all. That was written a couple of years ago as a messaging bill. It's filled with all kinds of stuff, some of which I think is okay, much of which I think is pretty bad and will not stand up to uh, to scrutiny in the courts anyway. And the Democrats, including Joe Biden, have attached this kind of apocalyptic hyperbole to that when that rhetoric belongs attached on the narrower threat. And there's really very little being done to address that threat, the threat that in 2024, Biden could could win the vote, and then Trump, the Republican uh, nominee, could uh, could tell you know five swing state legislatures controlled by Republicans, oh, there was just voter fraud, overturn it, and let's make me the winner. That's a potential true disaster for this country, and it's what we really should be focused on. So I hear Biden's rhetoric, and there's something sort of performative and unreal about it in a way that I don't think is necessarily that productive, but I don't have a great alternative because there is no bill that actually addresses this real, more serious problem. Well, actually, I mean, that was actually what I was sort of confused about. So I completely agree with you that the subversion is the is the biggest threat and that there's nothing in any of these bills that addresses it. But we did have this moment a couple of weeks ago uh, where, look, the, the H.R. 1, the For the People Act, it, it's over. You know, they couldn't get to cloture on it. It was never going to get anywhere. It's a big Democratic wish list, all kinds of stuff in it, um, some of which is good, some of which I object to. Uh, but there was a moment where Manchin then came back and said, look, Here's what I would do, and he 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 put some bullets down um, that were pretty sensible. Uh, there was really only one or two provisions in there that I I, didn't, I wasn't wild about. Um, Stacey and he he included a a voter ID provision, which Stacey Abrams then sort of just immediately out of the gate endorses, um, and boom, it looks like there's this opportunity to advance something that is much narrower um, and. I guess I guess I thought Biden's speech was going to try to pick up on that thread and push that kind of compromise at least at least on the Democrat side, you know, bringing all the sort of Democratic factions together and try to push that forward. And I was surprised that 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 wasn't really in there, Bill. Um, and I, I guess you know you talked about whether or not voting rights would be a motivating political uh, issue, but they don't have that much more time to like get this done if they're going to do it. And when they talk about it, when Biden talks about it in those terms, you know, can you tell me, do you know what the affirmative strategy is here? I do not. Uh, and I, I think President Biden gave that speech because he had to. 
He'd come under intense pressure from activists who were saying that he was neglecting that issue in favor of other things that, although worthy, they regard as much less important, indeed central, uh, to the future of the Democratic Party and the country. Uh, The Democratic Party didn't exactly rally around Manchin's bill. Uh, and, uh, And of course... Mitch McConnell uh, went from Republican senator to Republican senator asking them as a personal favor not to back it. And they didn't. Uh, So this is sort of murder on the Orient Express. There are a lot of people with knives. Uh, And but let me let me now segue to to Damon's very apt remarks about where the court where the core threat lies, which is in legislative subversion of the electoral process, it is perfectly true that we haven't seen a lot of proposals dealing with this threat. And I think the reason is that it's not clear that any proposals could deal with this threat. Uh, If you look at the language of Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, uh, you you will find words. I'm not looking at them, but I'm coming close to quoting them from quoting them from memory. Each state shall select, comma in such manner as the legislature legislature thereof may prescribe, comma uh, a number of electors equal to, and then the familiar formula, uh, and. It is, it is not clear what the Congress of the United States could do to limit that apparent plenipotentiary grant of power to the state legislature. There's even an ambiguity as to whether the governor of a state can be involved in that process constitutionally. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people are pointing to the fact that every single state in the country has a network of laws interpreting for that state what the manner of selection will be. But what a legislature can do, a legislature can undo. And if if a number of red states decide to undo the restraints on legislative discretion and leave it to the legislature to make the final determination, I think we need a very searching constitutional conversation about whether there's any any provision in the Constitution for to give the power to the federal government to tell the states what to do in that regard. And I'm not sure that there is, but... I think it would be a good idea to get someone who really understands that issue constitutionally on this show sooner rather than later. Linda, well, do you do you know well, constitutionally what the answer is? <laughs> well, uh, I won't claim to be that person. Uh, however, I mean, Bill is right when he's talking about uh, essentially, you know, the electors for the Electoral College selecting the president. Uh, but Article 1, I think it's Section 2, and I don't have it in front of me either, um, does in fact give state legislatures the right to set the manner, time, and place uh, of elections uh, for uh, Congress uh, for their own members. It was the House uh, at that at the time the Constitution was drafted because senators were not directly elected. 
Um, and it also, however, says somewhere in that article that it can be preempted by federal law. So I'm, you know, I, I absolutely agree. In fact, I wrote a long piece in, in the Bulwark uh, last week about the Voting Rights Act. I absolutely agree that the existential threat is not so much in uh, denying access to the polls, because there's a lot more access to the polls now. To, to claim that, the, that even some of the bad bills that the Republican legislatures are passing are somehow a return to Jim Crow, that I think is really unfortunate language. And I think that, you know, you cry wolf uh, one too many times and then nobody believes anything that you're saying. So I think it's unfortunate that uh, Biden framed uh, these uh, legislative challenges in terms of Jim Crow. It's not Jim Crow. They are, in fact, restricting some of the loosened rules that came into play last year because of the pandemic. Uh, I happen to think that's a good idea to have uh, more people voting, and I wouldn't mind seeing a federal law uh, that uh, determines um, time, matter, and place uh, for uh, federal uh, legislative um, elections um, that was more generous and, and more in keeping with what we saw in 2020. But I, you know, I I uh, I think that it doesn't serve uh, the Democrats or the president well to be framing it uh, in the way he is. And I would rather see some time spent doing something like Senator Manchin was trying to do, uh, which was. Um, you know, that um, he would put down some some markers and we talk about perhaps a federal law um, that put into place certain uh, principles. And um, I, you know, that I think would be good policy. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I, I spent, I, I'm scouring for a constitutional scholar who knows uh, all about this, uh, the subversion sort of provisions, but I don't, I couldn't come up with one um, for for this moment. Um, so we're going to have to move into our highlights and low light section and save that for another episode. Um, who wants to go first uh, for their highlights or low lights? Should I just call on you? I guess I'll start with, I'll start with you, Bill. Well, uh, I always offer uh, very serious highlights or lowlights. Uh, I frequently talk about alarming surveys uh, or other grim trends in the body republic. I want to break that streak. Uh, I have just finished a novel called The Netanyahu's. Uh, just came out reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review last Sunday, that is to say, two days ago. Uh, and it is screamingly funny. It's not fair. It's a caricature. Uh, but for anybody who knows anything about either academic life or the Netanyahu's, uh, there, there are a number of passages and set pieces that will just have you roaring uh, because it's so spot on. As it happens, I was an undergraduate at Cornell, uh, which is where the Netanyahu's finally came when they got when Ben Sion Netanyahu got an appointment as professor of medieval history. I know a number of people who studied with him. 
And uh, so it was, in every sense of the word, a guilty pleasure. And I don't think I will be alone in savoring it. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Linda, what about you? Well, I have a piece to recommend uh, in The Bulwark. Uh, It's by um, an old friend with whom I don't always agree, um, Elliot Abrams. And he wrote a piece called As Cubans March for Freedom, Democrats Are Split. And he talks about uh, the demonstrations that have been taking place in various cities uh, in Cuba against the government there, headed by uh, Mr. Diaz-Canel. Uh, it is a, um, and a remarkable thing that has been taking place where you have thousands and thousands of demonstrators in, in cities, not just Havana, but in, in cities throughout the island. And the government has now begun to crack down on them. And he talks about it in terms of, you know, democratic policy on Cuba and, of course, the Obama uh, rollback of uh, various uh, prohibitions against travel there and spending money there. Uh, And uh, Trump, of course, uh, reversed much of that. And President Biden has not been as quick as I think some on the left would like in reversing uh, Trump's reversal of uh, the Obama Uh, doctrine in Cuba. And uh, I think um, that is a good thing. And so does uh, Mr. Abrams. So it's well worth a read. If I could just chime in for a minute, I think this is a massive opportunity for President Biden uh, to back up his pro-democracy theme that has been so central to his foreign policy and to send a signal uh, that he is not simply a captive either of the president he served or of a faction of the Democratic Party with which he probably doesn't agree on this point. Great. Damon, what about you? Well, at the risk of of sounding like I'm sort of tooting the bulwark's horn here, um, I did want to... Toot away. Yeah, all right, (laughs) I'm tooting. Uh, Yeah, um, Basically, I, I think of, of anything that was released this, this week in print or digitally, the most important piece out there is uh, an essay. I think it's about 12,000 words long. So, you know, you're going to want to print it out and keep it around for a while. It'll take a while, but it is worth it. It's an essay titled, What the Hell Happened to the Claremont Institute? Subtitled, How the Once Distinguished Conservative Think Tank Plunged into Trumpism, Illiberalism, and Lying About the Election. The author, Laura Field, uh, writes uh, fairly regularly for The Bulwark. Uh, She's also a fellow uh, at Miss Cannon um, with Linda. Um, I don't always agree with her. She's actually written a, a, a critical essay that took aim at me and Andrew Sullivan and some other centrists just after the last election because uh, we, in in turn, took pot shots at the left that she didn't agree with. But this essay is just superb. It's a kind of uh, thoroughly exhaustive and uh, definitive examination of what has happened to the Claremont Institute, which has been around for a long time, had a huge influence on the right for many decades, and used to be a, a genuine source of political philosophical illumination and has descended over the last five years into exactly what the sub the the uh, the subtitle 
listed, a kind of uh, rally around Trump, uh, a kind of boosterism for liberal politics, and even uh, going along with, in a kind of winking way, trying to have it both ways about the election. Um, so anyone out there who's interested in uh, kind of trends on the right and uh, their intellectual correlates, uh, this is a real must read. So please take a look for look look out for it at the Bulwark. Thanks, Damon. Yeah, it's a real tour de force. And uh, as a little crossover promo, it is what uh, Tim and JVL and I spent uh, a lot of this morning talking about on the next level, uh, where we all we kind of dug into some of the the internecine elements of this, um, you know, conservative, the shift in the sort of conservative intellectual world. Um so for mine, I would I'm going to circle back to the beginning uh, to CPAC, and I I believe it is the four year anniversary uh, of Mona Charon going to CPAC and telling the truth on stage. Um, she was sitting on a panel, uh, I believe, in 2017, uh, where it was a Me Too panel. And it was, you know, meant to be everybody talk about how the left are hypocrites um, on issues of sexual harassment, uh, et cetera. And Mona on stage says, you know, the guy in the White House has the biggest Me Too problem in the country. This Republican Party has just uh, recently endorsed Roy Moore, uh, who was accused of uh, pedophilia and, and trying to date uh, or, or have relationships with much, much younger women uh, or girls. And she just gave it to them. And man, I just, I rewatched the clip as I do just about every year around CPAC time. And people start to boo and yell. And it was, you know, this is back when we, certainly I still thought there was kind of the 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 normal party was kind of still in there but you know she had to be escorted out by security people were so mad to have somebody just i don't know say something that didn't comport with their comfortable assumptions about what they should be hearing with their snowflake ears at CPAC uh but it was one of the bravest um you know it, it, it just it was in such short supply the bravery and um i remember every time i watch it it makes me cheer inside and so since she's not here uh i'm just going to remind people uh if you're as big a fan of mona uh, as i am which you probably are since you listen to the show you should go watch that clip um it's amazing so with that, uh, thank you all for having me today. Um, and thank you for listening uh, to Beg to Differ. We will be back next week and Mona will be back here as well. Thanks very much. 